Welcome to the Public Health Networker, the official podcast of the Public Health Podcast Network. I'm your host, Dr. April Moreno. Join us as we speak to public health professionals around the country and around the world in global, community, and environmental health topics. Join us also as we speak to podcasters in this field of public health. To learn more about us, visit publichealthpodcasters.com. And in the meantime, enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to the Public Health Networker podcast. I'm your host, Dr. April Moreno. We just recently completed our first online public health grad school fair. It was a success. We had almost 200 registrations to the event and we had 10 schools of public health and related degrees speaking at our virtual booths. And then we also hosted four talks on our main stage about success before, during, and after grad school. It went very well. I was really excited that uh, the technology and everything worked out well and we used Hopin for our conference. So we had virtual breakout rooms, virtual booths where people were able to hop in and out to the different schools and speak to them. So it was a success and we're looking forward to hosting the event again next year online as well for the virtual public health grad school fair 2023. So stay tuned for that. Our next event that's actually coming up very soon is November 3rd to the 5th. It is the People's Public Health Conference. We are the event coordinators and marketers for that event. It is an event that is focused on community public health in a way that is accessible, safe during COVID, and affordable so that no one will be turned away as a result of costs. The event is also very much focused on community-based efforts for public health and actionable examples of things that people are doing to advance public health. So registration is free with an optional donation to the Autoimmune Community Institute. And you can find out more at thepeoplespublichealth.org. Again, that is thepeoplespublichealth.org. In this episode, you're about to listen to an interview we recently had with Daniel Doss, author of The Political Determinants of Health, a very powerful and compelling book about the history of the United States policy and how did policy shape this. And so I hope you enjoy this episode. To learn more about us and our upcoming events, visit publichealthpodcasters.com slash events. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Public Health Networker. I'm your host, Dr. April Moreno, and today we are speaking with Daniel Dawes, He is a professor of health law and policy, executive director at Satcher Leadership Institute at Morehouse School of Medicine. He is also the author of 150 Years of Obamacare and The Political Determinants of Health. It is wonderful to join you, April. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So please tell us a little bit more about you and your public health story. Yeah, sure. So, you know, it it all started for me. I'm, uh, I'm originally from Nebraska and um, I, I grew up in very interesting circumstances and, you know, one of our uh, rural states in America to an interracial um, couple, um, a black father and a white mother. <clears throat> and as I was growing up, you know, it's, it's really uh, quite sad in a sense because, you know, my father, my father's mother, they would always say that their poor health was due to genetics. They really believed that. They thought that because they had higher rates of diabetes and we had higher rates of uh, high blood pressure and 
um, heart disease and other ailments, asthma and whatnot, that it was owing to their genes. And I thought, huh, this is interesting. And on the white side of my family, we noticed there were less health problems and a lot higher life expectancies. A lot of the folks on my white side were able to live into their 90s. But on the black side, they were lucky if they made it out of their 60s. And so that always, you know, stuck with me as I was growing up. Why is that? And I really thought, right, in the limited exposure that I had, that it was healthcare related, that truly our healthcare system is discriminating against um, racial and ethnic minority communities. And that must be the issue. And so I decided early on that I wanted to maybe go into hospital administration, right? And I was going to be a chief compliance officer and I was going to ensure that folks had, you know, um, uh, the equal protection of the laws, if you will, right? That they're, they would not be discriminated in our healthcare settings. But my goodness, as I as I started to study and 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 really immerse myself in in public health research and um, um, public policy and whatnot, it dawned on me that it was a lot more complex than that, right? It was a lot more complicated uh, than than healthcare, and so you know it it really pushed me to to dig it a little bit further and and as i did i decided during actually an event where i had interned with a safety net hospital down in south florida and witnessed an episode with a woman who had immigrated from haiti who was limited english proficient i thought wait a second i wonder how many times this happens then around the country, right? I had noticed in in the on the black side of my family that um, they were having a hard time getting access to jobs. They had been discriminated in employment. Many of the people on that side of my family were um, basically they had to find positions where they could they could work for a commission, right? Not a salary, not for benefits, not for any of those luxuries and privileges uh, that many of us um, may enjoy, and so. I could see how that then led from the employment piece to the education piece, um, from from uh, opportunities in terms of health insurance coverage and the like. And I said, I'm going to really do something about this. And in about 2000, when David Satcher, um, in the late 1990s, early 2000, when David Satcher was the uh, 16th Surgeon General and Assistant Secretary of Health, Along with Secretary Donna Shalala, I recognized that they had created this nationwide racial health disparities initiative. And I said, yes, oh my gosh, there's somebody paying attention to this, right? This is exactly what I've observed <laughs> in my own family, in my own community um, uh, where I was raised. And so I thought, huh, okay, people are examining this. And then later on, I found out that um, Congressman Danny Davis had had actually um, set forth a, a policy or introduced a policy writer on the Minority Health and Health Disparities Research and Education Act, which was the second major minority health and health disparities federal policy that had been passed by Congress, uh, post-Reconstruction, of course. So <clears throat> that law actually authorized the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality to look at disparities in healthcare and to look at the quality of care. But it also forced the Institute of Medicine to, to create the unequal treatment report, right? To look into this, bring scholars and examine the evidence. 
So again, we were making headway, but I have to tell you, as we were working on the Affordable Care Act, that's really where my eyes started to open, right? The World Health Organization had come out with its Social Determinants of Health Commission report, of which David Satcher was a part of, and of course, uh, Sir Michael Marmot, right? Who we know is one of the trailblazers in the Social Determinants of Health movement. And, um, and as we were negotiating the ACA, you know, unfortunately, we couldn't um, widen the focus to examine these more upstream factors, you know, for a host of reasons, right? Which I documented 150 years of Obamacare. But but I, I thought we had at least managed to insert 62 provisions in the Affordable Care Act to address the inequities um, in healthcare coverage and access, and to a small degree, nibbling at the edges of the social determinants and drivers of inequities. So it was through that effort, and then of course, you know, through subsequent uh, research that had been published by public health leaders around the world, that I think our eyes were opening to what was really causing these uh, these inequities uh, downstream, right? What were the fundamental instigators of these inequities? And, um, and so it helped me to think about broadening my lens and then broadening the coalition and alliances um, that I have worked with to advance this health equity and health justice agenda nationally. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing and a lot of the history you've been able to share with us on health policy and how we got to this point so far. Um, there's a lot that I still don't know. My story in public health um, actually begins at the implementation of Obamacare or the ACA. Uh, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so it's kind of a puzzle piece here. And this is a really interesting conversation because I'm also mixed, right? So I'm Chinese and Mexican, but then on the Mexican side, they are also Mexican and Black and African-American. Um, we, we have commonality here. I would love to hear your story one day. Yeah, implementing the ACA was where my story in public health started. Um, that's when I started to understand what is all of this. I'm just really grateful for the work that you've done on sharing um, all the different ways beyond literal clinical health care that affect different communities. Beyond genetics, right? Beyond genetics, absolutely. Oh how, how far we have come in our thinking and understanding about these determinants, right? And how genetics plays a very small part right. in overall health status. And, and these social and environmental determinants, as you mentioned, really have an outsized role. They play an outsized role in our overall health and well-being. So mm -hmm. yeah, kudos to you. Oh, thank you. So tell us more about the book, uh, the most recent book. Uh, how were you inspired to begin this second book on the political determinants of health? Oh my gosh, another great question. So. You know, as I guess I can pick up then, right, from when uh, the the social determinants of health uh, framework and um, ensuing research really took off, uh, at least in the United States back in um, 2008, 2009, right? Uh, again, after we had passed the ACA, you really saw an effort by our policymakers, um, you know, who were bold, I think, in their approaches to examine this some more. But as we were talking about that, I think from my standpoint, I kept saying to myself, okay, this is interesting. As we think about these structural conditions in which we're all born into, we live in, we die in, right? Um, how did they come to be in the first place? And it just, because of my legal training, 
I kept saying, wait a second. I know how frustrated I was in law school, right? Reading these laws, understanding the implications and the impact that they have on our society. And as I kept thinking about what the public health research was showing around the social determinants of health, I kept saying to myself, my goodness, every time preceding every one of these social determinants of health, whether it is education, whether it is transportation, um, whether it is employment or whatnot, there was always a preceding policy, right, that instigated that structural condition or that social determinant of health. So whether it was a law, a regulation, an ordinance, you name it, right, there was a preceding policy. And so as I started to think more about this, I kept saying, oh, my gosh, every time someone raised an issue, again, I kept saying, we're not quite finished with the equation, because I still believe we are merely nibbling at the edges of the problem of health inequities and injustices in this country, right? And 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 I and I was thinking about at the time <clears throat> the case law, right? Especially Supreme Court precedents that were coming out. And this was now in the mid um, 2000s, right? Um, uh, well, actually, I'm sorry, from 2010, all the way up unto about 2020. And I kept I kept seeing, you know, the Supreme Court trying to erode the protections for under-resourced, for marginalized groups. I saw the recycling of dicta and holdings, um, you know, around this, again, chipping away and, um, and, and making the argument that while, you know, we acknowledge that the state, the government, right, has played a role in, 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 in creating these inequities, essentially. They're so far removed today from the past that it doesn't even matter anymore. And we know that is absolutely not true. When you look at public health research, we have seen through epigenetic research and others that it still has significant impacts on our health, right? And, and as we're thinking about repairing the past, we really do need to focus on labeling it what it is. These are politically determined and driven um, determinants of health, if you will, right? And so the Supreme Court, I think, is interesting um, because they have said, well, these are socially derived, right? Essentially, that's what they're saying. They're socially derived. They're not politically derived, right? And because of that, if they make that case, then there are no constitutional implications or any legally enforceable remedies for the victims of these inequities, if you will. So for all of us who continue to stop there at the social right aspects and say that they're socially determined, well, it does raise some significant legal implications, right? Because you can't tie it to a legally enforceable remedy. And I, I have been really thinking about this, that, you know, as we think about all of these policies that have been devised, um, the majority of which really are what I call the political determinants of health inequities, we have had some success in realizing um, more equity focused policies, right? But they're so rare and so far in between, right? So I do think that only policy can fix what policy has created, which is why, you know, for all of us that, you know, have come to understand 
that there are these upstream determinants and drivers, we cannot continue to put our heads in the sand and ignore the fact that politics and policy play a significant impact in determining how long we're going to live on this earth and the quality of life and the quality of our health moving forward. Thank you for sharing that very important information. I mean, these are facts. These are things that we don't really think about. We talk about upstream, but then we leave it at the policy level and we we hand it over, right, oh in public gosh. health. And we can't do that anymore. We've Absolutely. seen... Right, because of the the Supreme Court wanting to go that route of saying they, you know, they are socially derived, right? And and the idea is that the the idea they're making is that well, you know, black and brown and white people they just don't like each other essentially, right? We can't force them to like one another. We can't force them to come together. We know that is absolutely not true, um, and and so they don't think about those levers, political levers, legal levers that have been pushed and pulled over time to ensure the status quo, right, over the 400 plus year history. And we do know that the political determinants of health inequitably distribute social, medical, and, and other determinants, right? So I, I, I don't want folks to lose that idea because it is, it is a critical aspect of, of our work in examining um, the creation and the perpetuation and exacerbation of, of, of racial and ethnic and other um, inequities in our society. So that is that is absolutely critical. And, 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 you know, April, when I think about the political determinants of health, whenever I am doing an analysis of an inequity that is observed in a community, I, I really frame it in this definition, right? That it, it the political determinants of health involve the systematic process of structuring relationships, distributing resources, and administering power. And they operate simultaneously in ways that mutually reinforce or influence one another to shape opportunities that will either advance or hinder health equity. So I do break it up into those three areas, looking at how um, you know, we distribute resources, looking at how we structure relationships, and looking at how we administer power. And then I, I look at it in terms of what exactly then has fueled this? What are the factors from a PDOH lens? And to your point, we can't, we can't just look at policy. We have to look at it from the front end as well, right? So we have to look at voting. We have to look at government. We have to look at all of these aspects of the process, the political process, right? Because it does matter that we engage in every aspect of that process. It is simply not enough uh, to go out and vote or simply not enough to think that a few um, you know, are gifted in the policy arena and just let them handle that for us. We have to all be engaged. The community that is closest to the pain and the problem of these health inequities should be the ones who are leading the solutions, right? And so I do think it is absolutely critical that um, you know everyone has a voice, right? And everyone has a seat at this table and that voice is respected and it is heard and it is um, welcomed and incorporated as the government is making decisions and so forth that impact virtually all of us, right? And all of our health. Mm -hmm. Thank you. 
And so, you know, that kind of leads me to my next question about a call to action. Is there a call to action that you share with your readers or, you know, listeners of this podcast episode? Uh, what can we do in the field of public health as students, professionals, community people who may not have degrees in public health, but really care about a certain health condition or something that their communities are going through, what can we do? Is there a call to act? Like, is there something you would recommend? Oh my goodness. Absolutely. I, I know that when I speak today with a lot of health equity and health justice champions, they really are despairing, right? They've, they've lost hope in, 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 in recent times, especially with what we have seen uh, coming out of the Supreme Court and um, in, in other governmental bodies at the state level and maybe municipal level as well. But I'm here today to say, April, that um, I'm actually quite optimistic. And here is why. Because we are in the fourth period of this nation's history for in terms of a great awakening of health equity right? We've had four periods. The first was when President Abraham Lincoln freed Black slaves and actually worked to create the nation's first major health policy addressing the social determinants of health needs of, of, of these freed, newly freed people and poor whites and others in this country, right? But we saw how racism and hatred works in this country. It does not sleep, right? Hate never takes a break. And, and so seven years after that major policy was passed, we, we, we saw the dismantling of that program. And then it would take about 100 years almost um, for us during the second Great Awakening for Health Equity. And that was during the Civil Rights Movement. Two years into that movement, health equity champions like you and I and others, right, listening to this podcast recognize, wait a second, we need to get moving, right? There's so many people who are dying prematurely and who are sicker, right? What are we doing to address those issues? And so we saw that movement in the 1960s to address the more overt forms of discrimination in public health and healthcare, right? Then the third one happened a few decades after that, when we started addressing the more subtle forms of discrimination, right? Uh, in public health and health status, the inequity disparities, right, if you will. And and um, and that, again, was building upon uh, previous uh, pieces. And then this fourth one now has really opened up, right, uh, for us, where we health disparities. We are talking about health equity. We're talking about breaking down these structures and, and systems that have perpetuated harm. Uh, and, and oppression on, on communities of color and other uh, vulnerable populations. So it, it is, I think, such a rare opportunity for us right now uh, to, to, to stand up courageously and be bold and say, wait a second, now is the time to do something that is going to be transformational, right? And address these political determinants of health. Because what I am afraid of, and here's where there may be a little pessimism, if we are not careful, what we have seen in this country is that every time we've realized um, these, these three um, preceding periods of health equity, there was always a period of retrenchment that followed, right? Or backlash mm -hmm. to undo the gains that had been made from that policy standpoint. We see that happening right now in this country with white nationalists and Christian nationalists and others 
who are trying to spew their message of hate in this country, who are trying to um, stir up dissension and division in this country, who are trying to undermine our democracy. And so people need to wake up and recognize the period that we're in and, and actually get up and start doing something about it because we can, we have that power, right? The constitution begins with we the people, right? So we have the power, we need to exercise it, we need to be bold. And I will leave with this final thought from my dear friend and mentor, Dr. David Satcher, you know, where he reminds me more than ever before that what we need today, especially today, are public health leaders who care enough about these communities, right? But caring we know is not only enough, you gotta know enough, you gotta avail yourself of these political determinants of health, right? As contentious as they may seem, right? Or complicated or complex as they may seem, we have to know enough. We also need to recognize that we have to be courageous to do enough, right? This is not a movement for the faint of heart. We have to be courageous and we have got to persevere until the job is done, right? Because throughout history where we had made gains, guess what? April, I'm sure you and I are both exhausted and many of the listeners to this podcast are extremely exhausted. I know I'm, I am tired, but, but again, because hate never takes a break and racism never sleeps in this country, we have to be careful that yes, we take time to rest, but we have got to be vigilant and we have got to continue to push and spearhead um, this health equity movement forward. We have got to do all that we can to move that dial forward, right? To a meaningful degree, because I am hopeful that, um, you know, with all that we see going on, right? With all of the trends that we see happening in this country, with the fact that we're becoming a more racially pluralistic society, I believe that we now have the attention of the nation, right? Where people are saying, whoa, wait a second, I, I didn't realize that these inequities and injustices were happening, right? I thought we were in a post-Rachel. But we have their attention. We all know that that is not always for too long. We have no idea when that door will slam, but it will. And so we have got to be vigilant and, and, and really mobilize into action and ensure that as we are looking at opportunities for everyone to vote, we know voting can mean the difference between life and death, as we are looking for opportunities to engage in the political process and to inform the government and then, of course, help develop policy, that we are involved in every step of the process. It is absolutely critical. So again, I want to thank you, April, so very much for this opportunity today. Thank you so much. How can we learn more about your department, your program, your institute? How can we connect? How can we reach out? Oh my gosh, thank you for that. So we, you know, at the Satcher Health Leadership Institute, we have a, a website at satcherinstitute.org. Again, satcherinstitute.org. Folks can go up, uh, go to the website. They can sign up. They can sign up for our, our newsletters, um, sign up for our fellowship programs. Um, you know, however they want to get involved, just contact us, let us know. We, we welcome you into this work because we know that health Health equity is a multidimensional issue, and it takes a transdisciplinary and, and collaborative uh, group of, of, of leaders and scholars and community 
um, activists and advocates and so forth coming together and working together to realize the vision uh, that we are setting out to do. And, and, and our vision really is to create systemic change at the intersection of equity and um, PDOH. So again, I want to thank you for that um, um, that opportunity to really showcase the Institute's work and and how your your listeners can get involved in this thank work. Because so we're much. all co-laborers in this movement, right? We are. We are. We are all interconnected. Uh, we are all part of this community, this global, national global community. Uh, so thank you so much for joining us today, Daniel. My pleasure. Thanks again. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed the episode. And again, to learn more about us, visit publichealthpodcasters.com. Get your podcast listed on our public health directory. You can also become a member and develop your public health career journey with us, networking with other peers in the public health space. Visit us at publichealthpodcasters.com.